0: Welcome to Episode 17 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Hi, it's Todd Houston. I just wanted to mention that we want you. We want you to be involved with the 3C Digital Media Network as a content creator. If you have a course in mind or a webinar, or if you'd like to start your own podcast, we would like to work with you. So go over to the 3C Digital Media website and sign up to be a content creator today. And now back to the interview. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elizabeth Rosenswag. Elizabeth is an assistant professor and chair of the Department of Speech Language Pathology and audiology at Yeshiva University Stern College for Women. She sees families for auditory-verbal therapy and mentors candidates for listening and spoken language specialist certification worldwide. Her research interests include trauma-informed care, personnel preparation, and Auditory Verbal Outcomes. You can find more of her and about her at her website at www.auditoryverbaltherapy.net. Here's my discussion with Elizabeth. So, Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell me how you got involved with listening in spoken language?
1: Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I was really fortunate growing up to attend a school that was very integrated. There were a lot of children with various disabilities in the school. Many of them were in self-contained classes, but some were mainstream to varying degrees. And I was a new student at that school in fifth grade. And in my class was a girl named Lauren. And Lauren had lost her hearing as a toddler. And her parents, you know, it's amazing to think about in the days before the internet, pounded the pavement and they found out that Cochlear implants were undergoing their FDA pediatric trials in New York City so they made their way to New York and she was one of the first 100 children in the United States to receive a Cochlear mm-hmm. implant they relocated to St. Louis so she could get the rehabilitation that she needed and then by the time I joined that class in 5th grade she was fully mainstreamed and so we had a lot of common interest we liked ballet we liked reading and incidentally she just happened to be deaf but she was my friend. And so we were best friends all through middle school. And also at that school in our grade were several students who had varying degrees of hearing loss who were in a self-contained classroom and would join our class for things, you know, specials like gym or drama, things like that. And I just think it did not take a rocket scientist at age 10 to see that the educational and social opportunity available to Lauren because she had access to sound, because she could listen and talk, because she was mainstreamed, were so, so different than those of my friends who were in self-contained classes, sometimes used amplification, sometimes didn't, and communicated primarily through sign language. And I think if you had asked me back then what made the difference, I would have said, oh, well, you know, Lauren has a cochlear implant and these other friends don't. And as I have grown and matured in my career, really what I think made the difference was parental involvement and parental cultural capital. You know, Lauren had parents who had the means financial, emotional, educational, and otherwise to say, we see what's being offered by our local school district, which at the time was kind of total communication and like maybe some vocational training when she's older. And they looked at that and said, no, thank you. That's not our dream for our daughter. Whereas I think the parents of some of these other children who had, you know, kind of came to the table with far less capital thought that you kind of saw the option that the school district presented and your choices were to say thank you or thank you very much. And that's it. And you kind of take what you're given. And so it's really become apparent to me that, yes, the technology is so important, but it is the parents and the families that make the difference. And so really since fifth grade, I have relentlessly pursued this. And I feel so grateful, first of all, to have a good friend in middle school as a game changer for anyone but to have had such a good friend who really changed the course of my life and I feel so fortunate that every day I get to do what I really feel I was put here on earth to do and it's an amazing thing to get to be a part of with children and families to be chosen and drafted onto their team to walk alongside them as these families create really beautiful futures for their kids
0: and and so let's talk about you know high school through college and PhD and all these other wonderful steps along the way. Can you summarize that?
1: Sure. So again, since fifth grade, I kind of always knew this is what I wanted to do. I spent my summers working at the summer session at the MOOC Center for Deaf Education in St. Louis. So, you know, going from being the Kool-Aid pourer all the way to having my PhD, but that's how you do it. And I always tell my students, the more places you can be a fly on the wall, the better, because you just learn so much just by being there. And if your skill as a seventh grader is to be the Kool-Aid pourer, be the Kool-Aid pourer Um, and be the recess supervisor. So I did. With that, I then finished my master's degree at Fompon University. And I was really fortunate to have had a scholarship there funded at the time. It was by the Oberkotter Foundation, but it was a personnel preparation grant to prepare speech-language pathologists specifically to work with children with hearing loss. So after I finished my master's degree, I worked for three years at a university hospital cochlear implant program, and at the end of those three years, Uh, my husband had a job opportunity in Canada. So I knew we were going to move, but I also knew that the job was a two-year stint. And so we weren't going to be there forever. And I had always been interested in having a private practice and being my own boss. I wanted to have the freedom and flexibility to serve families the way I felt that they really deserved. And when you're part of a big university hospital system, there are a lot of benefits, but there are also constraints because a big bureaucracy has to have constraints they have to run with procedures and systems which are great in terms of efficiency but sometimes very frustrating at an individual patient level when you see wait a minute this person needs something different and so I had had a little bit of teletherapy experience at Vanderbilt they had just gotten a grant to start implementing a teletherapy program and I'm the kind of person who's just like too stupid to know I can't and so I was like sure I could do it. So I saw a few patients via teletherapy. And then when it was time to start a private practice, I thought, you know what? I know that I'm not going to be in Toronto forever. I know that there are so many children and families out there who need services and just don't have access to someone with listening and spoken language specialist certification. So I thought, what the heck? I'm going to start a teletherapy practice. So I did that for three years Uh, Well, excuse me, for two years while we were in Canada, and then I was really, really fortunate to receive a scholarship from the National Leadership Consortium in Sensory Disabilities, this NLCSD fellowship, which I think several other people you've interviewed have also had, and it's a program run by the U.S. Department of Education… Office of Special Education Programs, and it funds PhDs in deafness, blindness, and deaf blindness at a variety of universities around the country. So I was really, really incredibly fortunate to have gotten that funding. Otherwise, I really don't think my PhD would have been possible. And so I got that funding, and I took it to Teachers College, Columbia University, where I did my PhD. And finished that last spring, so defended in the middle of the pandemic, which was a little surreal, but much more comfortable to be able to defend from from my home office than to have to stand up in front of a panel of people. And finished that, and now I am an assistant professor and chair of the Department of Speech Language Pathology and Audiology here at Yeshiva University Stern College for Women in Manhattan.
0: Congratulations. That's a big step.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: into academia, which we certainly need more people with your background uh, in academia, but to also be chair of the department, that's a thats a two hats to wear at the same time. That's a big responsibility.
1: Well, thank you. I'm really fortunate. You know, I never thought, honestly, going into it, that I would want to teach college students. I was like, oh, college, students the worst, right? (laughs) Like they're so self-centered and I just have no desire to do that. I thought maybe I would go into program administration, like, oh, I'd like to be the head of an option school or an AV program or a university's CI team. But I think that one thing that really helped move me in this direction was when I started my private practice I also I would see families directly but I would also mentor and still do mm-hmm. mentor candidates for listening and spoken language specialist certification so these are people adults who are already practicing in the field as speech language pathologists or audiologists or teachers of the deaf and I loved it it really there was something about it that I never thought I would enjoy but it was phenomenal. And I think one of the things that is so great about it is that it forces me to constantly refine my skills. You know, it's great because people ask questions and people push back and people say, well, why are you making that suggestion? And I think we owe it to them to be able to justify that. So it's good. It keeps pushing me. And I think I realized that I would be able to help so many more children and families by helping other people, also be great at this. And so you can really, it's kind of a force multiplier. And I love that. So I love being able to work with my undergraduate and graduate students, hopefully sending people out there into the world who are also going to do really good work for children and families. But on the flip side, I also think that it's so important for me to remain in clinic A little bit. So, I certainly am not seeing patients full time, but I think if I'm going to stand up in front of a classroom or get on Zoom and tell a mentee or a student, okay, well, here's how you should do it, then I need to also be walking the walk because it's hard work. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who are doing this clinically, day in and day out, all day, every day it's emotionally taxing. It's mentally taxing. You really have to be at the top of your game. And so for me, remaining clinically relevant is sometimes the hardest part of my job, but I think it's really valuable. And I also just love the kids and the family. So I don't ever want to fully give that up.
0: Right. Well, you and I have the same philosophy. Yeah. I do two days a week at Akron Children's Hospital with their cochlear implant team. And I have my graduate students with me and it's... Uh, it's a challenge. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, especially now, it seems, you know, with, with COVID and all the things that are happening around us and, and the restrictions and uh, the challenges there. Uh, but I'm like you, I I always want to be involved clinically in some fashion because, you know, it, it's changing. I mean, things are changing constantly and i have to you know keep reminding my students that you know once you finish your masters degree you have to stay involved you have to stay you know on top of what's happening with the research and the you know just the technology itself is always changing and new things are coming out and you have to have that background have to have that familiarity to be able to counsel your families appropriately. And and when they ask you these questions, you can't say, oh, let me go find out. Well, you can do that. I do that all the time because there are times when I just don't know and I'm not going to make something up. But you have to have that uh, connection, I think, if you're going to teach and if you're going to be a mentor to students, they need to see you do it. And I think the biggest thing that always struck me when in my training years ago was, you know, you could tell the professors who really knew what they were talking about <laughs> because they experienced it because they did it versus those professors who maybe didn't have as much clinical and were more, you know, research focused and they talk more about theory rather than application. And of course, theory is important. They need to know that, but, it, it, I just seem to connect more with those professors who could talk about the theory, but also show you how to apply what you were learning and, and then see that carry through when you were maybe assigned to them in a clinical situation. And they continue to show you clinically what they were talking about. So I've always valued that a great deal. So my hat's off to you to stay involved and to keep doing because it, it will only benefit the students that you're teaching.
1: Well, thank you. I think it benefits me too. You know, I think it's a really bi-directional influence that what you do clinically influences what you do as a teacher and as a researcher and vice versa, right? What we're learning as researchers and what we're Mm -hmm. experiencing as we continue to stay on top of the professional literature, that should influence what we're doing in the clinic. I'll always remember, I think it was probably something like 2007 that I heard a presentation by Teresa Carraway. And one of the things that she said always stuck with me. She said, You know, when families come to see you, they don't want your best information from the year you graduated. Mm-hmm. They want your best 2007 information at the time. And so I always tell my students, right? Families need and deserve your best 2020 information. And I think, like you said, you know, to have the humility to model for our students making mistakes. Mm-hmm evaluating our deeply held convictions in light of the new literature and constantly learning and constantly growing. Hopefully we're modeling that for them because families do, they deserve our very best 2020 information and that we cannot stagnate where we last left off when we walked out of our university programs.
0: Exactly. And, and I have to say the students teach me a great deal as well. I mean, in terms of the questions they ask, you know, even I've been doing this for a while. So, you know, uh, even, you know, I've heard a lot of questions along the way, but you know, I still get stumped by some of the students. Sometimes they'll come up with something totally new and different or a different idea or perspective. And they'll ask questions and it forces me to think a little differently. And like, Oh yeah. Okay. I've, you know, and, um, haven't thought about that in quite that way before and and it forces me to again it's just another way of just staying current and being on top of your game and and forcing yourself to think through okay let's take this perspective that they're the way they're looking at the situation and let me think through this you know because i had not considered that you know so they're always teaching me things and i tell them that i say you know I really liked how you, you know, looked at the situation and and brought up these points that I had not thought about, you know, because I think, like you're saying, we have to be humble in those situations. We have to be able to show the students that we are also those lifelong learners and we're always growing and, and taking in new information and trying to apply it to best meet the needs of our families.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also that opens up the opportunity for students to learn and to try new things and to not get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. And I think families need that as well from us in a therapeutic session, right? We are asking families to try and do new things that to them might feel really, really foolish, right? Like to me, singing a song about an airplane Sounds like a great way to start a Monday. But to a parent who's brand new at this and really is not comfortable with that, that's going to feel really foolish. And the stakes for them are really high because this is their child's future. And so if we can model for our students, and then hopefully someday our students will model for the families they serve, this humility and this willingness to learn and to change and to be collaborative, hopefully then that just opens it up for people to have the ability to try and new things without fear. And that's how we grow.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. So I did mention earlier that I I heard your presentation at the AG Bell Symposium, which I thought was just phenomenal. Thank you. I hope you have the opportunity to give that presentation many more times. Thank you. Um, Near to here. So trauma-informed care. Talk more about that, if you don't mind, because sure. such a unique take on on what we do and how to serve families and having a, a bit of a different mindset, as we're talking about uh, looking at how we serve families. So. Tell me about more about your presentation.
1: Sure. Like I said, I'm always happy to talk about trauma. So I am really, really fascinated by The things that we have yet to determine about child and family outcomes, right? The research has given us so much information about the effects of age of implantation, about the type of intervention the children receive, about the amount of wear time, all of that. We have a lot of different factors that we can use to more and more accurately predict outcomes and trajectories for children and families. But any of us who work clinically know that it's a little bit messier than those numbers, that we can't yet predict and probably never will be able to predict with absolute certainty how things are going to play out. But I was always really fascinated by the questions of, you know, why does this diagnosis of hearing loss really activate and energize some families and then really paralyze others? And why do some children and some families just seem to really, really struggle in intervention while others do quite well? And I think working clinically, there were so many times when it was just never the families you thought it would be. You know, I always think about there was a mother on my caseload one time who had a third grade education in her home country, which was not an English speaking country, came to the US, um, did not speak English. So we did therapy in Spanish, which was her heart language. And the child was learning both. And one week we were working on the concept of some and many and few. And the family went home. And the next week, the mom came into therapy. She plunked down a bag of beans on the table and said, Okay, we learned some, many, and few. And she sat there and she showed me this whole activity she did with her daughter. The girl had it. And this is a mother who, on paper, you would say, Hmm, third grade education, doesn't speak English. That would be a family that I think a lot of people would write off and say like, oh, that's the family that's going to struggle. And then on the flip side, I had another family on my caseload around this same time. And both parents had a college education. Both parents had grown up in the U.S. and were native English speakers. They had plenty of money, plenty of resources. The mother had... Two older children, but they were older enough that she really could devote a lot of time. They were school-aged. These older siblings, she had a lot of time to devote to her baby who had just been identified with hearing loss. And week after week after week, they just really seemed to be struggling in therapy for reasons that I really couldn't put my finger on. And then the mom said something to me one time that was just revelatory, and I was so humbled by her honesty, and she just said to me, you know... Elizabeth, I pay someone to mow my lawn, and I pay someone to clean my house, and I even pay someone to paint my toenails, and I can't pay someone to fix my baby. And she was just Mm -hmm. paralyzed by that. And it was like, whoo, thank you. Like I should have paid her for that session. She taught me so much. And so it just helped me to think about the ways in which our life experiences outside of the therapy room in the lives of the parents we serve and even epigenetically, right, looking back at generational trauma, how does that play out in the listening and language outcomes for children with hearing loss? It's just so much bigger than the audiogram or the age of implantation. And so what I'm really interested in looking at is this field that we call near science. So talking about neurochemistry, right? What happens in that brain when we're exposed to toxic stress, when we're exposed to traumatic situations, epigenetics, which looks back at generational trauma, ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences anything bad we would not want to happen to someone before the age of 18, but also that R, which is for resilience. And I think we also have to look at that, right? Looking at the cultural capital, the generational capital, that family capital that families bring to the table. And so, yes, they may have a lot stacked against them with that N, E, and A, but also thinking about resilience and what are the family strengths and how can we build upon those strengths and foster that resilience in the families we serve. And so using that NEAR science, which is an established acronym, I did not come up with that, to do what I call HERE, which I did develop the acronym because I had to make it fit with AVT to make holistic, emotionally intelligent auditory-verbal rehabilitation. How can we put on this lens of Looking at the behaviors of the children children and family we families we serve through this lens of trauma and i always love the quote that trauma asks not what's wrong with you but what happened to you because sometimes when we're dealing with those really difficult behaviors from a child or a parent or both we kind of want to pull out our hair and say what is wrong with you but this says take a step back and say what's behind this behavior what happened to put people in this situation
0: and Can you do do you uh, can you report what happened with the family who couldn't the mom who couldn't hire someone?
1: Yeah, it was really tough. Mm -hmm. She really, really struggled. I wish I could say that, like, we had that conversation and then things just went beautifully for her. But no, it really continued to be a struggle for this mother and this family and learning and adapting to the coaching model of AVT of like, look, if this is going to happen, it's going to be because of you. And I'm here to coach you and to cheer you on. Uh, And she got there eventually, but it was not easy and it was not overnight. And I think that's where that resilience comes in. You know, the first mother I spoke about had a lot stacked against her, but she had also overcome a heck of a lot just to make it to that therapy table. And so I think in some ways she had that resilience. She had that bounce back and that resourcefulness that the second parent who had perhaps not been confronted Mm -hmm. with those kind of challenges in her life really had to develop. And so for her, the diagnosis of her child's hearing loss was her resilience development activity. Whereas the other mother was like, oh, okay. Like, here's the next challenge in my life, but I've got this. I've overcome things in the past. Um, And another quote that I always use in my presentations is by a woman named Sherry Mandel. And she always says that resilience is not the act of overcoming, but it's the act of becoming. That it's not about overcoming hearing loss, Mm -hmm. right? Like, the kid's always going to be deaf. That's not something we are trying to change. But it's who do you become in the process of discovering this about your child and discovering this about yourself and your capacity to be that child's first and best teacher and just the amazing potential that your child has that when you first get that diagnosis of deaf, you might never be able to envision.
0: Right. I I had a family many years ago. Uh, It was interesting. They the the little boy was about two years old by the time they came to see me and, and came in and already had a diagnosed hearing loss. Of course they show up for the initial evaluation without the hearing aids. And I sent the dad home to get the hearing aids. He wasn't very happy about that. And so, so ended up, we tested, I recommended therapy and, and wearing the hearing aids, you know, throughout the day, all waking hours, all that stuff. And, And it was very interesting that they were so put off by their child wearing the hearing aids, that it that it in a sense labeled him as having a disability, and aesthetically it did not fit their lifestyle kind of thing, and. And they didn't continue, they didn't want to do therapy after that. I mean, they I don't know what they were looking for in terms of coming in for an evaluation and and they had expressed wanting intervention and help. But when I said, you know, he really has to wear his hearing aids all the time, you know, when he wakes up in the morning to the when he goes to bed at night, all those things. And uh, they just had a a real negative reaction to that recommendation. And I, I saw them uh maybe uh, like a year, a year later or so out in the community. And they were out with their little boy and he was not wearing his hearing aids, you know? And it's like, what can you do sometimes, you know, it's like they, they uh, you can counsel them and give them the, you know, some family's information and try to be supportive, but they have to at least take that first step sometimes and understand where they want to go and what they want their child to become and, and take ownership of that, uh, maybe eventually they got there, but uh, it was interesting uh, the time that I was uh, in that community and and sort of near them. They they never never went there. So,
1: yeah, I think it's hard for us, especially because it's just so normal to us who work in this field. Like, oh, hearing aids, oh, cool. Like, what kind of ear mold are you going to pick this time around? It's so normal to us, and it's so difficult and foreign for a lot of families. And I always try to tell my students that we need to be so deeply invested in the process and totally divorced from the product, right? When I have you with me, you are going to have my blood, sweat, and tears, 110% of my effort. But I have to realize that I, I always say if they name anything after me, like there's the Pythagorean theorem, and brownie in motion. But for the record, now that we're on tape, if they ever name anything after me, the Rosenzweig theorem is, the, it's the Rosenzweig 3 a.m. barfing <laughs> theorem that she who cleans up the barf when the child has a stomach virus at 3 a.m. is she who makes the decisions. And that's just not me. I'm not volunteering to come to that household to clean up vomit at 3 a.m. And it's hard, right? You cannot want it for families more than they want it for themselves. And also sometimes their it is just different. <laughs> And I think like, whew, that would not fly in the Rosenzweig household. But again, I don't clean up the barf at 3 a.m. And it is heartbreaking because number one, for us, we know it's normal. It's no big deal. And we know what amazing potential there is. And so to us, it can sometimes seem like, oh, like this is such wasted potential, that perfect little brain. But again, it's so hard. It's very hard to be divorced from the product. Mm -hmm and just really invest as much as we can in the process. It's hard. It's very hard. People are messy.
0: And, and I like that. I think, I think we too often get so wrapped up in the product and, and where we ultimately want to go. We forget the steps it takes to get there, to really have the parents invested and, and to help them understand the process yeah. and what it takes. Um, so I think that's a very, very good point.
1: Thank you. One I have to remind myself of frequently. <laughs> you know, I think it's not that so you, it took me a long time to get to that point professionally and to really commit to always thinking of, you know, if people could do it, they would. And so what is getting in the way of their could? And sometimes I have to grip my teeth and repeat that to myself silently. But you know, so it's not always easy. I think it goes against our human nature. At least my human nature is to be judgmental um, and <laughs> to really have to work on yourself to get to that point of just that unconditional, right? That David Luterman, unconditional positive regard. It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done sometimes.
0: Very much so. Very much so. So let's switch topics for a little bit. You you are also heavily involved in the Bell Academy. Yes. For listening and spoken language, which I, I really thank you for your service on the academy board and doing that work. Where do you see listening and spoken language specialists and uh um, where do you see us going next? What's our biggest need right now, do you think?
1: Sure. Well, thank you. Yes, I am really honored to serve as a member of the AG Bell Academy Board of Directors. But I will say that I'm taking off that hat. And in this answer, for my prognostication about the future, I'm just speaking for myself. Um What is the need? I think that there are still so many children and families who lack access to high quality services. So I think it's really about capacity building in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. globally. Uh, And so how can we, number one, get people the information they need just about AVT in general, and then about AV certification, listening and spoken language specialist certification. And how can we make that pathway more accessible to people? A variety of languages, a variety of learning formats, and just bringing more people into this community. And also recognizing that there are people out there doing this work in far-flung locales who just haven't yet been connected in with this broader global network of LSLS professionals. So I think that's really important, increasing capacity to provide these services. And then on the other side is increasing the accessibility of these services for families. We need more providers, but we also need more families to know their options and to feel like they have real rights and agency in the process. And that, you know, just thinking for myself in the U.S. that your zip code and what the local school district offers so often determines the options that families think they have. And so how can we, it's kind of like a supply and demand issue, right? How can we let families know that they have the right to demand whatever they want for their child and not just thank you, or thank you very much to the options that the school district gives. But then if families are rightfully feeling more agency to choose the outcome they want for their child, well, we're going to need some highly qualified people to provide it. So I think it's a supply and demand issue.
0: Very good. And you mentioned the international outreach. I've been very impressed with some of the work going on there and and, really, really, the commitment to try to reach uh, more countries more languages uh, for the exam all those things and i know that takes resources and time and a lot of effort so thank you again for that service it's um, it's a
1: Oh, well, I don't know that I can take credit for that aspect, but there are a lot of really good people working on that and working on translating the exam to Spanish and beta testing that. And I think that is a wonderful milestone. I think it's step one. Mm Of Hopefully many, 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 because yes, there is a huge Spanish speaking population that will now be able to reach, but it can't end there, that there are so many people in so many other areas of the world. And also, I think we need to conceptualize Spanish speaking to encompass the breadth and depth and diversity of the Spanish mm-hmm. Speaking world. You know, Spanish in Spain is very different than Spanish in Mexico or Peru. And to really think about the similarities, but also the differences and the different needs of various populations of Spanish speakers, European and Latin American and elsewhere.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's <laughs> when you get into all the dialects of any language I and mean, it kind of it's kind of snowballs. So,
1: yes, but fortunately, we're language people. Right. So we can do with this.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, you have a a big job right now with uh, being on faculty and t- department chair. Where, where do you want to go from here? I mean, do you want to, you know, I'm sure your dean's not listening, so...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? If your podcast makes it up the charts, maybe they will be.
0: Um, academia? Do you think this is a good fit or do you want to, you know, go do something else or... What's in your future?
1: Oh, gosh, everything. Um, No, I really don't know. I really love what I'm doing. I am really fortunate in the position that I'm in that I get to have a lot of agency in the direction of the program, which I like. Uh, I like being able to shape a program uh, to fit what I think will prepare future speech-language pathologists and audiologists, regardless of whether they go into AVT or not. I tell my students I will still love them. Uh, but whatever they do, I want them to be excellent, family-centered, trauma-informed, evidence-based clinicians in whatever sector they go into. And so I'm really fortunate in my position that I can do that. I'd like to continue to see children and families clinically. I'd like to continue to do research on trauma and language. And I'd like to continue to be able to have opportunities. And I've been really, really fortunate to have the opportunity pre- COVID, to travel really exciting places and get to talk about what I'm passionate about with other people who really care about kids and families with hearing loss. So now a lot of that travel happens through my computer screen, but someday I hope to get back out there. I'm sure we all do, right? To get back out there. And so in a lot of ways, I think I really couldn't ask for much more Um, I don't know. I mean, give me a minute. I could probably think of more to ask for. But right now, I I don't know that I really could. I'm really fortunate to be able to get to do a little bit of all the things I love. And hopefully, this effort, combined with the efforts of so many other people doing this kind of work, will move the needle just a little bit uh, to make a difference for kids with hearing loss and their families.
0: Well, I think you've you've been given a great gift in that it sounds like you are exactly where you need to be.
1: Thankfully, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. I recognize more and more, especially now that that's a really rare thing to be able to say, and it is not a small thing. It is not a small thing at all. So I'm incredibly grateful.
0: Well, Elizabeth, thank you for your time today, and I wish you nothing but the, the best of luck and everything that you do going forward.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Elizabeth is an amazing young professional who is already having a significant impact, not only in the field of auditory-verbal therapy and listening and spoken language, but also now in academia. I applaud her commitment to her undergrad and grad students, and we definitely need more doctoral-level faculty who have an AVT background in our training programs. If you want to connect with Elizabeth, please reach out to her at www.auditoryverbaltherapy.net. I appreciate you joining us for this episode. And if you don't mind, please leave us a five-star review. That helps us to attract new subscribers and to grow our audience. And for those of you who have left a review, I really, really appreciate you supporting the podcast. And so, thank you, as always, for listening. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.